So if you look at the stuff that's on the screen, as we just kind of come back into it a little bit here, I just want to give a chance for people who are sitting here to ask, just maybe address questions that you have or something that's more direct. Ben? What if you could touch on uh, point number eight? Oh, yeah. Paul himself? Okay, so the argument that's made sometimes is that Paul himself appeared to make a distinction of when he was speaking uh, under inspiration and when he wasn't. And uh, to give you a specific example, uh, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you start at verse 10, he's talking to people and he says this, he says, to the married people I give this command. And then he says, not I, but the Lord. And he kind of puts that in a parenthetical, like that this is God giving this command. And he goes on to talk about like a wife must not separate but stay married. And if she doesn't separate, if she does separate, she should remain unmarried or reconcile with her husband. So he gives that command saying, not I, but the Lord commands this. Just two verses later in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I say this. And then he puts in parentheses, I, not the Lord. And if he says, if a brother has a wife who is not a believer, but he's willing to stay with her, then he should, and vice versa. So some people will focus on that and say, look, if even Paul made a distinction between when God is giving a command through him and when it's just from him, isn't he implicitly saying that the whole letter isn't inspired and there's a distinction that's to be made? I mean, he seems to make it. Here's the response. First, it takes a little bit of interpretation to understand what Paul might be saying. I agree that on its face he appears to be making a distinction between a command that comes from the Lord and a command that comes from him. But actually, if you look at the substance of what he's saying, when he says, not I, but the Lord, it could be equally read to be, and a lot of people have read it this way, this is a command you already have from the Lord. Like when he says, to the married, I give this command, he says, not I, but the Lord. What he's really saying is, you already have this command from the Lord. This isn't a new command about not divorcing. Then when verse 12, when he says, to the rest, I say, and he says, I, not the Lord, what he's really doing is he's extending, like he's saying, now I am commanding you. I'm giving you a new command, which is that we have a new experience here that we didn't have before, which is where a believer in Christ marries an unbeliever. Because remember, before Christ was with us, we didn't have this problem. You know, we didn't have this believer in Christ and married to an unbeliever. Or what he's really saying is, you now have a household where one person is converted and the others have not yet, which is what he's really talking about. So he's saying, I am giving you a new command. Okay, I see that interpretation, and in fairness, as I look at it, I say, hey, that's surprising, and it's a good interpretation. I like that. It's consistent with my view. But if I weren't going to buy it, if I were to say, no, let's hold this text to an even higher standard, let's not interpret it away, if I see Paul actually meaning to say that I am saying this, and it's from me and not from God, and a little footnote here, there are instances in the Old Testament and other where the, the prophet seems to be doing the same thing, like dropping out for a moment. My explanation would still have to do with the sovereignty of God. It would be that even when Paul thought that he was making his own statements, the Holy Spirit is superintending that. The parallel is, even when Luke and Matthew are taking quotes from a source that's outside the scriptures, even when they're copying their brother Mark in what he's writing, even when they're doing those things, they may be thinking, oh, I'm just going to lift this whole section of Jesus' teaching and just drop it right into my gospel. Even that is being superintended by the Holy Spirit. So 
I would say that humans were allowed to do whatever they were going to do. Even Paul was allowed to think, this is from me, I'm not even sure the Lord says this, and the Lord was behind it the whole way saying, that's exactly what I'm saying, even if you don't know that I'm saying it. That would be the inerrant view, response, to why there are these instances in Scripture. Do you think that, when you say that the Lord superintended that section, do you think it's possible that he intended for even that part where Paul's saying, like, this is from me to be in there, and that we could read it as, okay, this section is just from Paul, and be okay with that? Yes, because what you're talking about now is a question of interpretation. Now you're talking about what does it mean that Paul thinks it's not from him. So the inerrant view would not say it is or is not from him. I mean, it would say that God superintended it. But... It's not, like, for example, we have statements in Scripture where Satan says something. We have statements in Scripture where somebody's lying. The inerrant position is, that is true, they said that, but that doesn't make the statement true, right? Any more than here, if Paul is saying, this is from me and not from the Lord, now we have an interpretation issue. I'm not going to tell you how we would come down on it. Some people would say that God preserved this and inspired this so that we could see Paul's uh, belief that he was coming from himself, and now we have an interpretation to make, Right? Uh, there's another instance where Paul says he doesn't know something. Like, he says, I don't know if I baptized that person or not. I forgot what epistle it's in. He, he just writes that. He goes, whether I baptized that person or not, I do not recall. All right, an inerrant position would say, that is true, he does not recall. But it doesn't say that, like, well, because he doesn't recall, he's somehow not, he's in error now. It'd say, like, no, the text is true. He doesn't remember. And that's all you can do. Now, what do you do with that? I mean, in that case, it's a, it's a little throwaway, like it's a tidbit that probably doesn't mean something. It's written in a letter to somebody, right? But if it meant something, like in this case, yeah, you could have a whole church dividing over like, well, we think since, that, since Paul believed it came from him, we're going to interpret it this way. And another church saying, no, we're going to interpret it this way, and both of them could hold an inerrant view, okay? So it affects your interpretation, but like I said, it doesn't dictate it. Other questions? Yes, Warren? I guess this is this my earlier question too, is that it seems at times that you, in some senses, God uses people's biases and uses their fallibility and like knows that going into it and that's part of his sovereignty, that's part of his orchestration in the transmission of the scriptures inherently. And then, and then at other times with things like including the Apocrypha into the, like the Catholic canon, then that's something that's like a knee-jerk reaction. And that's something that, like, is like we can say it's like wrong or like a bad move. But like, wouldn't God have known that too? And why isn't that one? Why isn't He using that knee-jerk reaction as part of what He's superintending? So I guess it, it just seems like we're we're counting some things into God's sovereignty and not other things. And how can we make that distinction? Yeah, I want to be clear about what I'm saying there. When we talk about the inerrancy as it relates to God's sovereignty, we are talking about the authorship of the original text only. I do believe the Holy Spirit is involved, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe the Holy Spirit is going to intervene at every step to prevent a copying error, wrong doctrine, wrong theology. Like To me, that's too far of my view of what God is trying to do. I believe that His sovereignty is achieving a purpose, which is to deliver His word in written form to us, and his word to us without error. But obviously we can see from everything else that goes on in the world that God is not trying to prevent every single thing from going wrong. We've seen that in church history throughout. So if you're saying, are you drawing an arbitrary line at the production of scripture? Yeah. 
I wouldn't call it arbitrary, but I'm drawing a line. Because I'm saying that he had a specific purpose in the way this was supposed to be done. My specific purpose, so I'm being clear, is to communicate with us clearly and to have the result be that this is his word to us, not just somebody trying to capture some words they heard or some experience of him. Joe. What does it mean in terms of our own accountability if we're saying this is kind of one big game of telephone and God's responsible for the originals, but maybe other mistakes happen that he's not, well, he's not responsible for, but he's also not going to try to prevent. So if there are lapses in our understanding of what we are meant to do, or even small things, what's, what's our accountability there? Are you saying... Are you asking, like, would we be somewhat off the hook if it got translated incorrectly and we just didn't get it all? I mean, is that the question? Yeah, because that would make sense to me, but then at that point, what's the point of any of it? I think that's where we go back to textual criticism. I mean, whether you believe in inerrancy or not, whether you even believe in God or not is not really an issue. Most people who look at that say, we have so many manuscripts and we can recover so much of the original. And God's message is so clear in so many different places that I don't think that we could say that somehow there's been a corruption that prevents me from knowing what the central message is really all about to begin with. Okay? Now, as I say that, that leads somebody to say, well, then why is inerrancy so important? If, if that standard is all we really ever needed anyway, just enough to know the central message, and everything else was just kind of frosting, you know, like, why is this even an issue? And that's why I have respect for people who could take an infallibility point of view. That's number one. Who can say, the central message of salvation, faith, practice, as long as that is infallibly preserved, I'm going to stop there. I have respect for that. I think that it has consequence, though. In responding earlier, though, I'll bring back my earlier response. That view that, well, but if you find small errors in the inconsequential things, they ultimately affect the things we can't see, the bigger consequential things. And the proof in that, again, not to say that it's a slippery slope, the proof in that is the number of scholars that I've been reading about or reading quotes from who, once they started down that path, couldn't stop. But in fairness, I think it's because they started from a different point anyway. Look, I've said before that for a long, long, long period of time, inerrancy and fallibility was just the, the standard. Some people say, well, that's just because they weren't looking. I don't know. When I read things by Augustine, I mean, that guy was pretty smart. It's not like he wasn't looking. It wasn't like he didn't see these issues. It's not like we woke up in the 19th century and all of a sudden saw things that nobody else saw. I mean, maybe their paradigm was different. But I mean, everybody from Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, Aquinas, I mean, you could name some of the smartest people in the early parts of the church, and they thought that it was important to maintain that and didn't just compromise and say, well, you know, but the message is still intact. They were basically taking the view that every word is true. Yeah. We have learned so much more than people in antiquity and like things about the universe, like how fast that is and everything, like versus if you look at a lot of early biblical views of like a three-story universe and like this dome and then a, a watery um, uh, ocean and then a like, flat disk which was the earth and then this underworld and, and looking at their expression of their idea of God in that type of universe that they imagined was reality for them. And so I think like our experience and our knowledge of things like science and things like that is, is crucial for our understanding of God. And as 
as scientists, as philosophers started to understand more the vastness of the universe and started, oh, wait, wait, no, then we're going to go with a, a geocentric, then a helocentric. And as those things changed, necessarily their concept of God changed with where, where God was in the universe, how is God in the universe, like all of these different things, these different questions. But it's, it's strange to me because like the idea was such an emphasis on that we need to have this written word, which is God's communication with us, because, I mean, obviously, we didn't have writing for a very long time, and what about the experiences before that? Like, what about God's communication with humans before that, and is that not significant? Look, I've read excellent defenses of the fact that the Hebrews didn't believe in a threefold universe. I mean, I know that a lot of people are taught that these days. It's become very popular to teach that. But I've read excellent defenses that that's not even what the Bible's really saying. We've read that in just as much. Um, you asked, why does the word come at that point? What about God's interaction with humanity? Again, I argue by analogy to the incarnation. Why does he come in the first century? What about humanity before that period of time? Why has God's timing come at that point to alter the covenant and give people a covenant of grace? I don't know. I mean, I'm just pointing out that God does things in other contexts that I would say, also I would be asking the same questions, like, why'd you wait so long? I see in other places similar things. Well, what I'm trying to say more is like the truth of Christ, the truth of the resurrection, things like that would be timeless, in which case that truth does not have to be communicated through the text. To us, it, should, it would be true before, even if like all Bibles were destroyed, there was no trace left, it would still be true or have truth. So in that sense, it's weird to think of like, this is the primary expression of this truth. Well, wouldn't it be weird to say that the truth existed, but we, none of us would know about it? Like if all Bibles were destroyed, I agree with you, it doesn't take away the truth of who Christ is, and it doesn't take away his timeless existence. Um, but it would take away, perhaps, my ability to know him. I don't know what it would be like without God's word, um, but I'm trying to show you the assumption on which I base my position is that, absent that, God would have to be revealing himself in other ways, and he does. I don't want to be heard as saying this is the only revelation. I do believe that he's constantly revealing himself, even in specific ways to people, but that this seemed to be the way that he could express to whole generations of people during the time scripture is being composed and for many, many generations afterwards, the story of his plan with people. In my view, we work sometimes with philosophical and theological ideas which are not arbitrary, but are themselves open to discussion, sovereignty, God's unchangeability. And so when we start doing this, right, when we start questioning or start wondering about these, these basic propositions that we hold to be true, and we do that by our, maybe our study of textual criticism or maybe just our own kind of existential crisis occurs, and we start to wonder that, for me, the fallback is not to say, well, this was an errand, and I have to believe these propositions about God because, no, it's like, well, now we just have to live in that tension that maybe how I think about God is not correct, or at least in some sense, I have to be, I have to be okay with the fact that I can't know. Yes. 
just a very quick comment. So, like, this is my problem with that. Is I understand the living in attention of not knowing and accepting that I can't know because God is infinite. She's you know, a simple word, but I still need to live somehow. I need to make decisions, and like that's where it comes into a conflict with just being satisfied with not knowing. So I have to operate on some belief of something, and where I get those beliefs from, that's I think where inerrancy like has some effect. If like if I'm not getting it from the Bible, then inerrancy doesn't matter. Like I don't really care what these words are saying. Like my kind of quick response would be, you don't need inerrancy to engage in that process. So um, if for example, there are there are always struggles and there are always issues in our lives, and we can turn to scripture to look for example. But in other cases, we can't. Or in other cases, the worldview expressed by the language, by the ideas contained within, don't necessarily provide us any kind of illumination, or or maybe they kind of show us the progression of how people got to the place to, to they're at today, but that doesn't really solve the question. And my my thinking on that is just to say, well, that's okay. But why that book and not any book from any other religion? Well, I would actually say that that's okay. Yeah, but then why would you call it Christian? Like, not to like be directly putting on the spot. Like, I feel like then in that case, like you, I don't know, like I don't know that it always has to go as far as you just took it. Um, I believe some people can live in that tension and still remain followers of Christ. I believe there's a lot more people though that they begin from a different place. They're looking for reasons. They're troubled by things, and they're already having difficulty. And I, I'll just leave it there. I mean, I think that we've seen enough. I've read enough. I'll just tell you that. I've read enough theologians that you can tell that they've exited the camp. Enough said. Jill, did you have a comment? It's kind of what you guys were saying, but I think uh, my comment was not only do we still need to find a way to live within our tensions, um, we need to be sensitive on a whole other layer of our faith practice to the people we minister to. We're, I don't want to bring this too much into evangelism, but we need to be sensitive to the fact that even if we're comfortable with whatever our view is about infallibility, what if we meet somebody and we're trying to explain to them what the Bible is and what truth is and they're not comfortable with the tensions and they're skeptical of the entire message, the entire truth, because they're skeptical of that. That's what we've been talking about this whole time, which is why I think it's important to keep in mind that whatever we're comfortable with on our level, we still need to understand the rest so that we can be useful. I think that's why I said earlier that it's not inconsequential what you believe. It does have a consequence. Like Believing one way or another does lead to certain results. Let me close this up like this. Because First of all, I appreciate how much you guys have hung in. Thank you for letting us do this. I mean, if I say I spent 30 hours reading people's different things just this week alone, um, there was a lot to get through, and we've only scratched the surface of it. I just want to respond to one last thing in closing, and it's this argument that as we learn more over time, that we somehow know more. That's not always the case. Sometimes as we learn more over time, we actually confirm things in Scripture as well. You mentioned some of the scientific things that they thought about, but like I said, I've read great, great expositions of that concept who really look back. Just a couple of examples. You know, I know this is a minor one, but in the field of archaeology, until the 1900s, they couldn't even find the Hittites. Everyone used to make fun of that. You can actually read quotations of critics 
who made fun of the Bible because it's mentioned like 40 or 50 times these people that nobody could locate. They found them. They found them. It was in the 1900s that they found them. There's a concept in Isaiah where Isaiah uses two verbs right next to each other to talk about how God created and simultaneously spread out the heavens. A concept that actually didn't make any sense until we discovered the whole Big Bang Theory. Actually, nobody could understand why there was this duplicative verb, one that meant instant creation and one that meant creation over a spreading out. Nobody really knew. Now we at least have an understanding where you could say, yes, it wasn't until this last century and in the latter half of that century that we could even look at a text like that and understand it. Also, people who look at that first 11 chapters of Genesis that a lot of people think are just mythology, and I actually believe are a pretty accurate depiction. No matter whether you take the days of creation as literal days or eras of time, the fact that those people could even get them in the right order is astounding beyond any mathematical probability until, unless you wrote them in the 20th century. Okay, that doesn't prove everything, but it does keep us humble, and that's what the point I want to end on, is we need humility. All of us have biases. Some of us don't like this text. Some of us love this text too much, and we haven't really even ever looked at the critique of where these people are coming from. And we need to do all those things. We need to approach it in humility. Jeremy's right about one thing. We will never really comprehend God. And it will be very difficult for us to really say that we've captured him in a box by creating a theology, a belief about him, that somehow that he's going to fit into it, and it's absolute. Humility is what we need the most because we have biases. And because many of us make our theology out of experience and induction, meaning we just kind of like investigate for ourselves and then decide as if somehow the finite is going to appreciate or understand the infinite that way. I'm not saying don't experience. I'm not saying don't investigate. In fact, you should. You should read the arguments that are against what you believe. You should investigate deeper than you've already done. And I fear, as I sit here, that we're not going to. That we're just going to leave it right here, and as soon as this talk is over, all of this will fade from our mind. It'll be like, I'm not going to another Exodus again. <laughs> you know, like, can we just finish this topic and I can go back to talking about Matthew? Yeah, we will. But it doesn't take away the importance of understanding because it does ultimately get down to the doctrine of who God is and how he reveals himself to us. It's that important. But let's stay humble about our conclusions. I'm trying to stay humble in mine and being open enough to examine them and see the places where I'm weak, even in my own understanding. And I confess those at the beginning. So let me close and leave it there. Again, since this wasn't recorded at the beginning, I actually do want to thank Jeremy for putting in the time and doing this with me and to affirm once again that this is going to benefit so many people and I'm glad that he's able to debate back and forth on these points and we can go here and probably have fun if we're still going to go out afterwards. Let's pray and thank God even for the chance to do this. Lord, if I'm going to be humble, I have to confess to you that I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm not a man of pure heart or pure lips or even pure thoughts. And so in the midst of that haze, I'm also a finite person when it comes to my own intelligence and education and ability to comprehend you. And so, Lord, because I know that you're hearing these words, I pray first that you forgive me in places where I don't know what I'm talking about. I pray that you forgive me in places where I'm overzealous. I pray that you forgive me where I have not heard other people as they have expressed themselves. Or even, Lord, that I've not even stewarded the resources you've given me at my fingertips to study about you 
what a privilege it is to live in a time when at my fingertips from my computer I can reach the entire world's libraries. And Lord, I often don't care except when I need to scramble and put something together. Lord, in the midst of all of that, I pray that you take what we've done here tonight and that you use it for your purposes. I appeal to your word and it says that you let your word go forth and it does not return empty, but it accomplishes the purposes for which you want. And Lord, in my life, I affirm that I do believe that's your word. And I hope that you've taken what we've done here tonight, just this experiment in discussion and dialogue. And I pray that you teach the rest of the church how we can do that, even in places where we disagree, how we can continue to love and fellowship together and serve together and give together and learn from one another in humility. I pray all this in your name. Amen.